the need in front of us is to put in practice something that we have always known was necessary, which were good partnerships between parents and teachers. So now that is essential. And, uh, I think what this crisis really highlights is the importance of an education system. And by that, I don't mean a government bureaucracy, but about making everybody, education everybody's business. Welcome back to Wise Words, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and beyond. This is Bassem, producer of the show, speaking to you once again. And one of the key questions we're still looking to answer is how we can best support education decision-making to ensure an effective education response to the COVID-19 pandemic. A framework to guide an education response to the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 is a new report that was recently released to help guide education leaders and promote global collaboration during the unprecedented crisis. Harvard graduate professor Fernando Reimers and Andreas Schleicher, director of education skills at the OECD, issued the framework and join us for this episode to discuss some of its findings. You can find the framework linked in the description, so feel free to check that out. We hope you enjoy this episode's conversation, and if you enjoy the show, please subscribe to Wise Words on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. And as always, we welcome your feedback through our various social media channels. With that, we'll take you to the host of the show and CEO of WISE, Stavros Yanuka, to kick things off. Good morning, good, uh, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone. This is uh, Stavros Yanuka, CEO of WISE, welcoming you to uh, another episode of WISE Words. Uh, my guests today are Professor Fernando uh, Reimers. Uh, Ford uh, Professor in the Practice of International Education at the uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, and uh, Dr. Andreas Schleicher, the Director of Education and Skills uh, and Special Education Advisor to the Secretary General of the OECD, uh, the man behind the infamous PISA tests. It's uh, it's great to have you both here, and uh, I, I think it uh, it wouldn't be an understatement to say that we are uh, going through some pretty unusual uh, circumstances um, that uh, are not leaving uh, education uh, systems unaffected. Uh, in fact, uh, I've heard this described as uh, the situation that we're experiencing as the biggest unintended experiment. In uh, in online learning, and so I just love to get your your uh, your initial thoughts on uh, on the current uh, uh, pandemic and what it means for uh, for education, both the immediate uh, as well as potentially the 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 longer term. So. Perhaps we can start with you, Fernando. Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to speak with both of you. Uh, let me say at the outset that this is a real global tragedy. As of this moment, we have 2.5 million confirmed cases and 171,000 deaths. And in the state where I live, it's one of the three states with the most positive cases and deaths. So obviously, it's really hard to be talking about any silver lining in the middle of Uh, a pandemic that is taking on many lives and disrupting many aspects of life as we know it, economies, governance, and so on. And I also uh, believe that looking forward, this is shaping the world after this pandemic. The post-pandemic world is going to be even more complicated than this world is. Just think about fragile states that were many of them heavily indebted, having to absorb the financial costs of dealing with this, what this is going to do. It's going to make the last decade of the 1980s Uh, where many countries um, basically cut all spending in education, uh, look like children's play by comparison. But I think this is more than a big experiment in online learning. This is really a stress test of the capacity of education systems and leaders to cope with adaptive challenges. Um, this is obviously a challenge for which there is no playbook. There is a challenge on which we cannot depend on what has been done before. But 
for years, right? People who've been thinking about the future of education that has been so much of the focus of the wise convenings have been talking about the necessity to prepare people for exactly that world, to prepare people with the skills that they would need for a world that was volatile, uncertain. Well, this is the world we have, where in many ways, the speed at which those processes is being compressed and is testing all of our capacities, faculty, leaders, to respond appropriately. So when Andreas and I collaborated, I began a collaboration to try to stimulate a different kind of leadership based on information, um, we did it because we realized that many leaders didn't know what to do and they were not depending on facts. And we said, well, there are two things that are necessary in this context. Number one is some attention to the facts. What is it that people are saying? And second, creating opportunity for conversations across a wide spectrum of stakeholders in the education system. By definition, an adaptive challenge requires a leadership that is highly collaborative, that promotes creativity, and that makes it possible to have a lot of communication, multiple feedback loops. So that's what we have tried to do. I, I believe that this is what is actually being tested, whether we have systems that are capable of functioning, not in traditional top-down command and control approaches, but relying on distributed leadership, a lot of communication, opening up the space for innovation to all kinds of actors, public and private sector. We'll see when we come out of this thing. Um, whether we were able to make it. I, I suspect this is not going to be a crisis that will be resolved in months. I think this is going to last uh, with us in one way or another until there is a vaccine. And the best estimate is that that is at least a year away, maybe 18 months away. Thank, thanks, Fernando. And, and uh, you're absolutely right that there is a, there is a, a human tragedy uh, to this that, uh, and I think as we will discuss later, extends actually beyond the casualties of, uh, of, of the virus. Uh, Andres, can, can I get your thoughts, please? Yeah, you know, I think Fernando has laid out the dimensions of this crisis and the challenge really well. This is clearly unprecedented. And in a way, the crisis is exposing and amplifying many of the problems and inequities in our education systems that have been there for a long time, from the broadband and computers that you need for effective online learning through the kind of supportive ecosystems that can sustain you know, self-regulated learning up to our consistent failure to align resources with needs. This is something that is now coming to the forefront. It's also very likely that the crisis will leave those without access to digital resources, without the right parental support, and without the resilience and capabilities to learn on their own even further behind. So clearly, this crisis is going to amplify inequalities that we already have. But I also think that moment in which we are holds the promise that we do not just get back to where we started when things get back to normal. Now we have agency. It's always our, the nature of our collective response, our systemic response that is going to uh, determine how we will actually end up in this. And um, that makes me optimistic because, you know, the downs downside is, you know, the enormous pressures on the system, you know, putting everything under enormous stress. But the upside is that we are seeing actually countless teachers and institutions who are growing beyond themselves in this very moment. Uh, in a way, the, this crisis has also liberated a lot of creativity and initiative at the level of institutions, at the level of schools and teachers. And as Fernando said, education systems that uh, have been capable to combine a high degree of professional autonomy with a collaborative culture, they are now being able to address this crisis and show the resilience, whereas education systems that are industrial, heavy, top down, they suffer really, really, really badly. Now, what is so very clear in this moment is that even the best minister of education can no longer address the needs of millions of students, of hundreds of thousands of teachers. Now, what you need at the moment is the capacity to, you know, not to push ideas into the classrooms, but to find the good ideas in classrooms and to share them and to spread them and to scale them. So education systems that have this kind of 
lateral culture of sharing. They, that is their, their really moment. And of course, that also calls for a very, very different form of leadership. Now, leadership, you know, who can provide an enabling environment for initiative, who can tackle the institutional structures that are too often built around the interests and habits of, you know, adults rather than the learners, the leaders who are sincere about social change, imaginative about policymaking, and who are capable to use the trust that actually enables them to deliver change. And I think where we find that, and, um, that, that is where I see this, the opportunity in which we are. And, and, and I hope that, you know, we will see uh, many, many young, young people who after, you know, experiencing self, you know, organized learning will go back to their teachers and say, Hey, you know, this crisis has made me discover new things. Why don't we do this in school? And I hope that we're going to see many teachers who have struggled, you know, who have grown beyond instructors to become, you know, good coaches, good mentors, good facilitators, good evaluators, good social workers, that they're going to go back to their school leaders and say, hey, why can't we organize schooling differently? That's my, my hope in all of this. Now, that's, that's, uh, that's a terrific uh, uh, note of, of, of optimism. And, and I want to get to that uh, later on in our, in our discussion. We'd love to sort of hear uh, examples of this kind of uh, transformational, uh, almost uh, leadership that's that's happening for you know from uh, from the ground ground up. But before we go there, um, the, you two gentlemen uh, and your institutions collaborated recently to uh, put together a report, uh, a framework uh, to guide uh, policy responses to the, to the COVID-19. Can we, can we talk a little bit about the genesis of that and, uh, and then share with us what are some of the key, uh, messages to come out of that, uh, uh, report? And, uh, it was based on a survey and Wise was, uh, was, was very happy to support the, uh, uh, the distribution of, uh, of that survey. So, uh, Fernando, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. So let me start by giving Andreas and you a lot of credit because to me, just the beginning of this collaboration was a way to see who can, who can understand the moment. Uh, when about, I think five weeks ago now, I began to get a sense from talking with colleagues in public health that this was going to last a while, that this was not a short-term two-week break, and that we needed information on how this crisis was being experienced at the local level and what were the challenges. I did write to people in very senior leadership roles in five international development organizations. And the person who responded right away was Andreas. I mean, like within half an hour. He said, absolutely, we have to do that. Let's do it. And we began to collaborate. And um, I think within a matter of days, we had a survey. And uh, then we reached out to people like you. And you, too, responded within minutes when you said, can you help us? We said, we'll mobilize the entire WISE community to help you with that. And I think within a week or 10 days, we had basically... I think this was the first effort that brought some empirical evidence to how this was being experienced around the world. And I believe it contributed to advance the conversation and it may have kind of raised the bar and caused others to ask maybe we should be doing more uh, in terms of prioritizing the educational dimensions of this crisis. That's really what we were trying to do uh, at a time when everybody was looking at the health implications of this crisis and doing all these modelings on how many people were going to die, no one was looking at what are the educational implications of this crisis and what is this doing to the minds of the children who are being impacted by this now and who will be impacted further. And that collaboration has very nicely evolved. I'll ask Andreas to talk more of that into an ongoing effort that now includes other partners. So I've been very pleased. I mean, I think this is a time when you see who are the adaptive leaders uh, in this community and who can move their organization. The truth is that organizations, large organizations by design are slow to respond, all of them, whether it's a school district or a university or an international development agency, are slow to respond to unanticipated events. But leaders can make the whole difference. Uh, in my conversations with Andreas, we haven't had a single minute on who's going to pay for these, who's going to take credit. We said, this is about getting the work done and I'll mobilize what I can, you'll mobilize what you can. I mean, it's the same sense I have 
of how we would respond if we were in a war zone or if we were in a sinking ship. In a situation like that, you don't really ask for the big picture. You do what you can to help as many people around you as possible. So it's been a real pleasure to certainly collaborate with Andreas and now his colleagues and with you and with other colleagues. But but it's also been a very humbling reminder of the real constraints that exist in the international development architecture to get this kind of rapid and agile response. And I, I worry about that because this crisis is going to last a while and we need that agility and flexibility and this capacity to respond fast. And if we don't have it, if we don't have it, there are many people who are going to be impacted. I mean, we should be having conversations right now of the debt burden that the nations in sub-Saharan Africa have, which is going to bring them to the brink of collapse uh, when they work out of this pandemic. And I think it's no accident that people as different as Pope Francis on the one hand and George Soros on the others have said, we have to start talking about renegotiating the debt and debt forgiveness, or we're going to squeeze the capacity of these states to invest in their people. But I don't see very many international development organizations proactively putting that conversation forward. So I'll turn it over to Andreas to say more about what we're doing together. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enormously grateful for Fernando for this initiative. You know, just, you know, in a moment of crisis to stand up and to think, you know, what can we do at our place? And, you know, in normal times, in peace times, you know, we would have started with drafting an MOU and all these complicated kind of things and very little would have happened. And I think the fact that within a week uh, we were out in the field to get actually the innovators, you know, compiling their ideas, to share their ideas, the willingness of respondents as well. I think it was overwhelming. There are 400 people taking the trouble in very, who were all, you know, overworked and overburdened by the crisis to contribute to the common good, because this is what this initiative is really about. It's everybody, you know, thinking, what can I contribute? What can I share? The resources that Fernando is now, you know, curating, uh, it's an enormous wealth of good ideas and innovative responses that we can share with the world. And again, for me, that's the positive side of the crisis that actually, you know, with a little bit of initiative, with a little bit of curation and support, we can unleash the imaginative power that is in education in, in so many fronts. And that's really what this initiative is about. And it's a great way of, you know, institutions collaborating without the institutional frameworks, really, to just think about, you know, what is the problem that we need to solve and how can we actually uh, make a difference? And I think, you know, that's something uh, uh, Fernando has been really at the heart of this. And uh, I, I do hope that, you know, after the crisis, we will retain that capacity, that resilience and not, you know, policymakers and everyone has been so quick to push the off button. And that's really, I think, the the experience that Fernando and I had in common. You know, everybody tried to sort of say, how can we avoid short-term costs and short-term risks? And uh, we push everything off into the future. And I think what our, you know, intention has been to make the longer term visible to people and to get people on a thought process, you know, uh, how we can take care of that longer term future in education. And I think it's great to see the level of response that we, we received to this. If you're curious, I can pull up a couple of slides from that survey, but uh, you've distributed. So since we're all working in our computers, I have it right here. So, Well, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about what, what some of the key findings are. Uh, and, and Fernando, if it's if it's uh, so maybe Andreas, you can talk. I will I will find it. I just need a minute. But in the meantime, Andreas, why don't you say a word about these new modules that are uh, that are coming up, part of this collaboration, if you if you want. Yeah, several things. You know, first of all, the uh, resources that are available for online learning. Uh, the process, we are now in the process also. The World Bank is a great player in this, helping to curate uh, resources for online learning. And it's not just, you know, high-end digital, you know, capacity. It's also about, you know, radio and television resources that are very valuable, uh, that are available uh, but we don't have a culture of cross-border sharing. I think that's part of the struggle that we find ourselves, that education is still so inward-looking, so national to local. But I think curating those resources. The second area uh, that I think this uh, work brings to the forefront is effective strategies for implementation. Uh, it's not just a question of, you know, great solution, great resources, but how do you actually make change happen? You know, how do you bring, you know, parents along, teachers along, learners along? 
to design a different form of learning environment because the worst thing you can deal with this crisis is just to extrapolate traditional education into the digital world. You know, that is just going to exasperate the problems that we already have. So I think, again, you know, finding good strategies where change has happened and making those strategies available as a global public good. I think that's another really, really important objective of our work in the, in the, in the, in the short term. So I'm just going to share three slides from that first study, which of course you have seen. So the first one presents the rank order um, areas where the respondents identify critical needs. And as Andreas mentioned, these are respondents from a hundred countries. Now, it should be pointed out, this was not a survey designed to reflect the perspectives of governments. We used a very wide scattershot approach. I mean, you were implicated, Savros, so you know how we collected this data. We basically went through our friends and networks and said, send these out to anyone who has anything to contribute. And there is some virtue of this approach because by design, it is giving as much weight to the perspective of a principal or a parent as to the perspective of a minister. And in a situation like these, maybe that's helpful uh, because part of the challenge may be that the minister doesn't really know what's happening in the same way in which a parent is experiencing it. At any rate, so you look at what they, what um, now these data are now, I think three weeks old or four weeks old at the time, really of the beginning of the social isolation period for most people. The big priority, according to the respondents was, ensuring the continuity of academic learning. People were wondering, how are we going to make sure that people keep learning? The second one is, how do we support teachers so they can work with their students in this new way? Third one, ensure the well-being of teachers, and then so, so on and so forth. But in, in fairness, all of these are seen as priorities. If you look at the right-hand side of this chart, very critical. And then the next one, somewhat critical. If you consider those two segments, as what most people consider important. The truth is all these areas are being perceived as critical needs by the respondents, right? It's what you would expect. Now, the next one is what are challenging priorities? Not the needs, but what should be addressed? And that changes a little bit. Oh my goodness, hard to see it here. So the first one remains ensuring the continuity of academic learning. The second one now becomes supporting students for independent study, not supporting teachers. As Andreas mentioned a while ago, this crisis is going to amplify all pre-existing inequalities. And the truth is that education systems were serving some students uh, to gain these skills much better than others. For a recent book that I published, I relied a lot on data that the OECD has collected, not only in PISA, but on tallies. And it's a very interesting story that if you look at the U.S., for example, and you focus on the kinds of capacities that would develop what I could would call 21st century skills, right? Our schools do well for about half of the kids, and there is certainly between 30 to 40% of the kids who don't have any opportunity to develop those skills for independent work, working in projects independently, and so on. So obviously, these are the kids who are struggling right now. This is why the people who responded in that survey said, oh my goodness, essentially what they're saying is we haven't prepared students to be autonomous learners. That's what we're yeah. facing with. And then lastly, there was this issue of implementation challenges that Andreas mentioned. And again, the priorities here change a little bit. Ensuring continuity of academic learning remains the first one, but the second one that's very visible is availability of technological infrastructure. I, I think that this moment is a real moment of truth to really speak honestly about the reality of education systems. For so many years, I've had, I have heard people say things like, you know, I just give a laptop to every child. They will teach themselves. Just put a computer in a box and kids will figure out what to do. Well, what we know now is that that's not true, that you need a lot more than giving a kid a laptop. You need even a lot more than giving them a self-paced curriculum. And, uh, and that's what we're seeing. If we, I, for years, I have been engaged in academic conversations about what do schools really contribute? And my answer to those, which I actually found a little bit futile, I mean, it's the kind of stuff that people who have a lot of education would love to debate. But my response would be, one, facetiously, if you really doubt the value of education, would you be willing to not give any education to your kids? But more seriously, I would say, you know, the only way to test that 
is to look at the difference between societies that are very poorly educated and those that are very highly educated. And uh, if you want to do an experiment, shut down the schools and see what happens. Well, sadly, that's the experiment we're doing now. The experiment we're doing right now is what happens when your schools are working with one leg and two hands tied behind the back. It doesn't look very pretty for most, for many kids, for most kids. So anyway, I, I embrace all the opportunities and all the possibilities in this crisis. And I think it's very important to remain hopeful and to remain optimistic. But I also think this is a great moment of truth. Uh, for us to discover that this world that some people in their labs or some people, you know, with multiple PhDs were imagining that if we just gave every kid a computer, uh, things would be fine. It's just untrue. It's interesting that um, continuity of academic learning, not unexpected, the continuity of academic learning was was top of mind for... uh, uh, for people going into this crisis, but one of the things I noticed in your uh, uh, in, in in your recommendations were really a call to look again at the curriculum and do some triaging, which is you know I, uh, a, a term that uh, uh, has has multiple connotations at this at this point in time, but but really to 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 not try and simply replicate everything you had pre-COVID. Uh, Do you get a sense that uh, school leaders and policymakers, education policymakers, are beginning to think anew about what it is that we really need to prioritize when, when we think about learning? You know, I think it's going in both directions, actually. Uh, legitimately, you have many parents, many teachers, many school leaders asking themselves, you know, if I have only... 30, 40% of instruction time in this current crisis. I better focus on those basics that help my students, you know, get towards completing school, getting a degree, getting access to the labor market. And so that's one kind of push at the very same time. And that's, I think, what the survey also shows very clearly is that uh, there's in an understanding that the future is about a different model of learning and a different uh, skill set that is important, a different combination of cognitive, social, and emotional capabilities that will be influential mm-hmm. for student success. So you have both uh, articulated. This is a very, very difficult uh, dilemma. Most, I must actually say that most countries have in a way, bitterly failed in prioritizing the curriculum content in this moment. They have pushed it on the shoulders of individual teachers or schools to figure out, and that, you know, creates incredible pressures. But I think that kind of strategic decision, what is actually at the heart of student success for tomorrow as well, is the one I think we should uh, we should be having now. And I think actually great schools are doing this. And uh, we see in our Education 2030 project at the OECD, uh, there's, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of really innovative schools around the world that are actually using the moment that, you know, the exam pressures may diminish. You know, some countries have, you know, uh, postponed, canceled examinations that are actually saying, well, let's see how we can, you know, utilize a more holistic form of teacher judgment in this moment. So there's a lot of opening for this as well. But the pressures are real. You know, I think we cannot play with the future of this generation. We cannot simply say, okay, you know, let's get rid of exams and let's just, you know, everybody get a degree. And then at the labor market, those young people don't have any credit. So I think these have very, very difficult tensions and pressures, but they need to be dealt with systemically. You know, we cannot do that at the level of individual schools or local communities, and that's what's happening. I, I agree 100%. I think what the survey reveals is that at least four weeks ago, most in most of those 100 countries, there really hasn't be, hadn't been a strategy on the part of governments to understand that when you have diminished capacity to deliver and when you have a new situation, you must develop new priorities. And one finding that is very sad, uh, we didn't report that in the survey, but if you compare, I mean, there were countries where the answer was, it was one question, is there a plan? And the answer was no, no plan. And you can guess that most of those countries are the poorest countries, developing countries. If there is one clear gap in those 100 responses is the gap that is created by institutional capacity. It's not necessarily money. It's institutional capacity and leadership because Estonia is not necessarily a rich country, but obviously it's a place that seems to have its priorities well-placed in education and good leadership. So they had a plan. 
And um, so that is one very interesting and very concerning finding. These are some of the inequalities you're going to see. I mean, imagine if you are a poor country with weak infrastructure and your government basically lets the school solve the problem on their own. What's going to happen? Well, the schools that have more educated teachers and better teams and so on are going to put it together and others are going to be totally left behind. But the second issue, I agree. I mean, in, in presenting, we have presenting this survey and heard from people who have read it. I have a sense that some governments haven't really internalized that you need to admit that your system is functioning at 50 or 60%. So you can't go on pretending that the world hasn't changed. A, because you don't have the same capacity to deliver, and B, because the priorities are different. So take, for example, a country like Chile, which is a country, in many ways, a high-performing or highly improving country, but it's also a country where it's known that there are very high levels of domestic abuse. Uh, even if you look at Latin America, you know, it's, uh, it's something that they have to deal with. And so it's a place where I have the sense that the government hasn't internalized, they're still putting this pressure on parents now to prepare these kids for the tests and to have this academic focus. I mean, my own sense, my own personal sense is going beyond the survey, is that this is not a very good response. Uh, at this time, you should prioritize, first of all, the well-being of the kids. What you don't want to do is to add pressures in homes where there are multiple vulnerabilities and where there is underlying issue of abuse against women or against kids and just bring them, bring them to the brink of more abuse. This would be terrible. So in that place, maybe the thing to do is to relax and to step back and say, okay, how do we support the parents so they can do that? How do we prioritize well-being? How do we tell them, listen, we're not going to administer the test this year? I mean, our own government in the U.S. had a very good sense. The federal government here, as part of national legislation, requires states to assess the children in these statewide tests multiple times. And for the most part, this is not a bad thing. It gives you feedback. But in this context, A, there's the logistics of being able to do that, and it probably shouldn't be the first priority. So the federal government rightly said, we let the states decide why they want to do that. And at least my state, Massachusetts, said, you know what? We're not going to administer this test this year. It makes no sense. We have other priorities that we have to figure out. So I would hope that most education authorities would understand that the reality of diminished capacity, the reality of very heterogeneous conditions at home, and the reality that this context is affecting the lives of people. People have lost their jobs uh, in multiple ways, require that we reprioritize what's important. And what's important may be different in Qatar than in Chile, because the contexts are different. But I, I don't, so I don't think it's for me to say it should be well-being everywhere. But certainly the response of education authorities shouldn't be causing harm to children or to families. And I, but if I may add, you know, uh, in a way the crisis exposes a pre-crisis kind of problem. If we are honest, our instructional systems have become a mile wide, but just an inch deep. Now, we are teaching a lot of stuff at very superficial depths. You know, we are focused on, you know, in sort of the content and the kind of competency has really, really suffered. And um, uh, what we're seeing now at this moment, that the challenge is to teach fewer things at greater depths. And this crisis somehow pushes us to make those kinds of choices. And in a way, I think that is also where... The, the opportunity lies to sort of, we spend a lot of thought in education on the how question, you know, the philosophy, the methodology, the pedagogy. We spend actually very little time on the what question. What is it that young people need to learn? Because this is the hard question where you touch values, where you touch ideas and goals. Uh, but I do think that is the conversation that is really now important. Yeah, and, and I'm, glad, I'm glad that you brought up uh, the whole issue of social emotional uh, learning. In fact, just at the end of uh, of last week, we uh, we held a uh, a two day uh, online convening as wise to discuss exactly this issue and and how to prioritize you know social emotional learning particularly during this time. And I think you know I know Fernando, you're you're you know you're keen in a sense to sort of that that responses should be contextually appropriate. But I I do believe that. What we are experiencing is unprecedented. And even though those of us who are in relatively uh, comfortable uh, circumstances, there has to be an underlying anxiety about what the future holds. And everyone is experiencing that, uh, I think, no matter where 
where they are and how well situated. So in some respects, learning how to cope with uncertainty, with anxiety is an invaluable skill set. And, and there is a knowledge base and a philosophical underpinning to, to how you go about thinking of those things. And our education systems don't, don't even come close to, to addressing any of those issues. So absolutely, in, in terms of, of the what uh, of, of education, personally, at least, I have long argued that that's, a, that's been a, a neglected arena of inquiry and and in fact, some of the same people that have been, you know, advocating uh, uh, the the one laptop per child and and uh, you know computer in in uh, you know in, in in a wall type of solutions are also the kind of people that have been saying, you know, it doesn't matter what you teach, um, you know, so long as so long as uh, you know kids are passionate and curious. Well. Again, I think what this crisis is exposing is actually no, it does matter what you teach, even at the level of basic basic knowledge. You know, for example, how do we interpret, you know, the the mass of data that's coming at us now about this pandemic? You know, how do we make policy decisions uh and and determine trade-offs between uh, you know, economic harm which eventually will translate into into healthcare uh, health harm as well uh, versus the immediate risks and dangers of of, of the uh, the pandemic. These are all critical questions, and you know, we I I think we are most of us are actually ill-equipped to uh, to even begin to get our heads around that that kind of challenge. I, I very much agree with this. You know, it can take a simple field, even you know, not going into social emotional skills, but like mathematics. You know, all the formulas and equations that you have learned are not helping you at this moment. But if you could think like a mathematician, if you can understand the nature of an exponential function, you understand the logic of this pandemic. You understand the kind of responses that are needed. So teaching people, you know, the architecture of our disciplines rather than the surface is becoming so much more important. But I want to add something. You know, the social emotional skills is something that now has brought support. You know, employers are speaking that language. I think educators actually share that idea. But I do think we need to get one step beyond that. You know, many of the big questions that pose themselves in this crisis are of an ethical nature. You know, uh, can you, you know, distinguish between right and wrong, you know, the short-term human cost versus a long-term kind of, you know, uh, consequences. And uh, artificial intelligence, you know, is another of those forces. It's an amazing amplifier, an amazing accelerator, but it amplifies good ideas and good practice in the same way as it amplifies bad ideas and bad practices. So the capacity of humans to make those kinds of distinctions is becoming so vital, so critical. And we spend very little in education on those questions because, again, it gets difficult for teachers. It's about, you know, for teachers, it becomes uncomfortable. And, you know, many people say, well, you know, that's not the realm of public policy. But uh, I, I do believe this crisis brings to the forefront what education is really about, you know, helping people to think for themselves and to work with others. Let me let me turn now to to the question of where do we go from here? Now, I think we we've obviously touched on the you know on on the issue of uh, greater depth uh, in curriculum, uh, deeper thinking about. Uh, what it is that we should be focusing our education on? What are, what are some of the things that are gonna gonna help us come out of this? Uh, in in your view, and not simply uh, seek to go back to status quo ante. Fernando, maybe I think about that question in two time horizons. While the pandemic is ongoing, which in my mind is a one to two years time horizon, and then in the post-pandemic world. So I think while the pandemic is ongoing, one area that should be a huge priority is how do we support parents and caregivers so they do a good job 
supporting their students learning independently. We're going to have to look for ways to support independent learning. Andreas mentioned some of the work we're collaborating in includes curating some of those resources, whether it's online learning, radio instruction, TV. But those things don't work alone. Those things are going to be mediated by the support that parents can provide. And I think this is an area in huge need of support. We should basically be extending what we knew about good practices to provide teacher professional development to parents. And it's not that teachers out of, out of the picture, it's just that their access to kids is now mediated by parents. So in, in many ways, the need in front of us is to put in practice something that we have always known was necessary, which were good partnerships between parents and teachers. So now that is essential. If we don't build that capacity of, I mean, think about a parent of a first grade child or a second grade child. If you don't try to level the playing field a little bit, by providing ongoing support to that parent, the opportunities of that child are going to be very limited. Most parents don't necessarily have a lot of knowledge of how to teach their kids. They have outsourced that function to schools, and now they are in the front lines. So I think that's a priority. I can envision, I can envision how these need to develop, I wouldn't call it a homeschool curriculum, but a blended homeschool curriculum, right, where there is participation of the teacher is something that could continue going forward. That going forward, we would end up with much more involved participation of parents in supporting the learning of their kids and, and that we would recognize that this is an area that needs high levels of expertise and that you can gain that expertise. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a paradox that in the 21st century, you still need to take a course and pass a test to get a driver's permit, but there is nothing of that sort to become a parent. You just become a parent because of a biological accident and then you have a license and some people do a better job than others. So maybe we understand that we should invest in teaching people at different points how to support their kids for the short term. I also think out of necessity, we are going to have to support school leaders and teachers into understanding what schools of the 21st century really look like. I think where our systems are very traditional is not just in how they're organized, it's in how they're managed and how they're led, uh, really using an industrial model. There is a lot of function on the graded school and so on, and a lot less attention on how we're governing schools where the person at the top acts as if they knew all the answers. Obviously, in a situation like this, that form of leadership makes absolutely no sense. This is a situation where some of the dysfunctions, I think, of our schools result from all the politics and the various interests of adults that basically take prevalence over the interests of the kids. And where you have barriers to collaboration, to communication in the interest of the kids, because everyone is trying to basically use that arena, which is the public school, to advance their own interests. I'm talking about the adults. In a situation like this, that mindset is really harmful. And uh, it, it should be very clear that we should be organized to serve the kids first and foremost and principally, and that we should let go of our institutional boundaries, silos boundaries, and create much more horizontal forms of communication, of leadership, and so on. And I, I think it's this, this crisis is going to make evident that most systems are not there. And they will need to move there to manage the crisis, and hopefully they would further move there. I mean, hopefully, and there's where I share the optimist of Andreas, maybe this is going to force us into building truly 21st century organizations, learning organizations where the adults don't live in this hypercritical world where they say one thing and they behave in a very different manner, but we will all learn what it means to function in learning organizations. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to make that transition, and I suspect that those able to make that transition will do a lot better for their kids than those who hold on to an old paradigm of kind of top-down control and command. I really share those ideas, and uh, I think what this crisis really highlights is the importance of an education system. And by that, I don't mean a government bureaucracy, but about making everybody education 
everybody's business. Now, making sure that this becomes really an ecosystem of support, of mutually supportive relationships, starting with a different type of learners. If you think, you know, in peace times, the year before the crisis, we had you know, in the OECD, the wealthiest countries in the world, just about 30% of students who had regularly the experience of working on a project for, you know, more than a week's time. So autonomous learning, we spoon feed children. No, we yeah. do not give them the autonomy to actually become self-regulated learners. Now, in this crisis, that's becoming a necessity. So hopefully we are going to see that, you know, what is growing in capacity now translating into a different type of, of learner into the future, apart from, you know, the question of curriculum that we discussed before. When it comes to educators, same thing. You know, I think the role of, of teachers as uh, facilitators of innovative uh, learning processes, as designers of innovative learning environment is coming to the forefront. In a way, you know, the instructional delivery, the delivery part, that's been replaced by technology in this crisis. You know, teachers are not playing that role. That's actually where technology has become really, really good. The test of truth for you as an educator at this moment is to build that social fabric, to understand not only, you know, your subject and how different students learn that subject, but to actually know your students, to take care, you know, to understand their needs, to engage with them as individuals. And I hope again, you know, the, after the crisis, we're going to see that actually shaping outcomes. And, you know, I asked myself early on in this crisis, China was the first country being hit and they got, you know, 50 million learners online within a month. What made it work? Well, you know, they were good in, you know, rolling out technology. I think that's part of it. But I think what made it really work that you have teachers there who are not seeing their primary role as instructors, but who see their primary role as relationship with the with the students. They actually, even in normal times, they spend a lot less time teaching than American teacher. They spend a lot more time, you know, working with students outside the classroom, working with each other to actually frame good practice, to actually engage in <clears throat> professional collaborative learning. And again, you know, it's a different nature of the profession where the profession owns its practice and, you know, advances the education system. I think that's very important. And then, you know, the question of leadership. Fernando highlighted this really well. That's really where imagination really becomes so important. Leaders who unleash the capacity of, you know, learners, of teachers to build, you know, a very, very different kind of ecosystem around them to reach out to communities, to reach out to employers, to bridge the world of work and the world of, you know, learning in the schools. I think that's going to be very, very crucial. So that's, I think this crisis really pushes us to think harder about that notion of a system, not in the form of, you know, 20,000 isolated schools, but about uh, how do we make education truly a whole-of-society project, not a whole-of-government project alone. Yeah, and a whole-of-society whole project, to my mind, also implies thinking, uh, perhaps, you know, radically is not, not the right uh, uh, adverb to, uh, to, to use in this case, but, but to really rethink issues like, you know, for, for example, the school calendar. I mean, why is it that we are still following essentially a northern hemisphere agricultural society calendar that, you know, requires, you know, a, a long summer break, you know, for the harvest and and uh, the, the sowing season, right? Uh, you know, why, when we know that that has, uh, and we've known for a long time that that has negative impact on, uh, on learning, particularly for uh, underprivileged kids who don't have the benefit of, you know, going off to summer camps and, and, uh, uh, and, and doing uh, kind of remedial uh, learning uh, uh, programs and, 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 you know, all, all the kind of things that are available to upper, upper middle class uh, kids. You know, why, why not, you know, think in terms of lifelong learning, right? So you learn at your own pace. Okay, so you, you happen to be of, you know, of the COVID-19 generation that, that, you know, that should your future be forever blighted because, you know, being, uh, uh, or graduating at, at, around this time, why, why can't we, I mean, surely it's within our uh, collective abilities to think of, uh, of ways in which, uh, you know, these, these, uh, you know, young people can complete, you know, and even enhance their education in, in, uh, you know, in, in these circumstances. So really, it's about just going beyond kind of band-aid type, 
you know, solutions and uh, and perhaps rethinking, you know, the 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 entire enterprise. I, I agree with what both of you have said. You know, this notion of making everybody's business and seeing the big picture. And it's interesting that maybe it's a crisis of this sort that makes it possible for us to see that big picture and to truly understand the meaning and the necessity of collective leadership. I, I have, for so many years, tried to bring together various stakeholders here in the U.S., and tell them, listen, but in the end, you have the same interests. I mean, these are stakeholders that fight bitterly. I will not name the institutions and, and try to remind them, you know, your interests are poor kids. You all have the same goal, but uh, so much energy is wasted on basically reflecting either corporate interests or really egos, really egos. And um, in our sector, I envy the health sector, to, to be truthful, because you look at the health sector response and you see great alignment of all the components of the ecosystem. So yes, on the front line, you see the healthcare providers, but behind them, you see, on the one hand, the schools of public health or medicine, you see the pharmaceutical companies. There is great coherence in that ecosystem. We're not there yet. I mean, that's why the WISE Forum is so special. You have over the years worked so hard, Stavros, to try to bring all these various groups and to help give them an opportunity for mutual recognition and to discover shared interests and to collaborate. But as long as you've been working on it, I don't think we're there yet by comparison to the health industry. And, and I remember using the analogy um, with these two particular interest groups in the U.S. saying, I hope it doesn't take a war or a big economic depression for us to discover that we really have the same interest. Well, this is it. This is it. Yeah. It's worse than a war. And so maybe we will discover the necessity to see the big picture and to really build alliances across our smaller partisan institutional interests and to understand that either we're going to survive together educationally or we're going to sink together. We're going to mortgage the future of an entire generation if we don't if we don't figure out a way uh, to do collective leadership at this time. Thank you, thank you, Fernando. And I think that's uh, that's uh, a a tremendously important call uh, call to action, uh, gentlemen. We're coming up to the hour mark, and I want to I want to offer uh, uh, Andreas as well the opportunity to just to share a few. Uh, closing thoughts? Yeah, no, I think I, I very much sort of support the line of thinking that Fernando offered. Uh, but I think for me, what is important is that we realize that education today is no longer just about teaching students something, but helping them build a reliable compass and uh, the navigation tools to find their way through the kind of situation in which we find ourselves now today in the past in the past educational success was what you know just reading mass and science today it's about identity it's about agency it's about purpose now it's about building curiosity opening minds it's about you know building compassion opening hearts it's about courage mobilizing the cognitive, social, and emotional resources of people to take action, to take initiative, to change the world. And I think that's also going to be the best weapon that we can offer against the biggest threats of our times. If you think about it, you know, ignorance, the closed minds. If you think about, you know, fear, the closed heart and uh, the enemy of agency, I think this is something that we we should take this moment to reflect on the education that we need to tom for tomorrow. And I think actually, again, you know, there is um, a lot of resource out there. Many teachers thinking about those questions, many school leaders uh, at this moment struggling with those kinds of issues. I, I hope we can use and find the momentum to, to change education. Well, what, what I what I take away from from our uh, conversation is, we need to think in 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 sort of three think and act in in three sort of time frames. The first is obviously the the immediate, and and there I I take uh, I take on board uh, the the need for collective leadership for collaboration as we improvise and innovate our way through through this crisis, and that could see us through to. Uh, 
Fernando, as you say, to you know, to a year, perhaps to and, until we get to the point where we we are comfortable reopening our societies anywhere near the level they were uh, just a few short months ago. Then I then I think there's there's the immediate aftermath, uh, and there I think we need to we need to work extremely hard to ensure that that the kids uh, that have been most impacted by by this this uh, crisis do not become a lost generation. And again, there's going to be some remedial work that that needs to happen just to make sure that we we uh, we protect those kids and we make sure that that we give them a fair shot. At, at success in, in life. And then there's the longer term. And there, I think we, you know, we, uh, we spent quite a bit of time uh, talking about ways in which we can, uh, we can almost leapfrog into a, a, an education uh, system that goes beyond, you know, beyond the ministries of education, beyond the, uh, beyond schooling, that, that becomes essentially a social Social enterprise, in the sense that it, it is it is an endeavor that the whole of society gets, you know, gets gets behind. And we take seriously things like getting parents, you know, equipped and ready to be uh, to be part of the education uh, solution. And, and Andres, it's interesting that you talked, uh, you, you mentioned China, and and you know, one of the things that Confucian societies, I think, do. Do very well. In some cases, one could argue they overdo. You know, is the the you know intergenerational involvement with you know with education, right? From the grandparents to you know to the parents. Um, you know, they they consider it part of their role to uh, to to guide and you know cajole and even push. You know, I don't mean to stereotype the you know the Asian uh, the tiger mom, but. Uh, there is an element of truth in that, and and the the fact that you know the, these societies tend to cope better, it's because it is very much seen as as a family and a social uh, social endeavor. We also talked, I think, at length about about thinking long and hard about what it is that we really want to prioritize in in the what of education, uh, and to go deep, perhaps in fewer things but go deeper rather than superficially try to cover uh, a very very sort of broad curriculum that inevitably most people will uh, will forget uh, once they're once they're out of the school system I hope that's a fair summary of our uh, of the key takeaway uh, takeaways of our conversation before I I, uh, I thank you both what is the best way for people to uh, to follow uh, the work that you will continue doing to to sort of guide the policy and practice responses uh, to the current crisis. What's the best way for people to 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 keep track of, of what you're both doing? I'm sure that Andreas has on the OECD website a link to what we're doing, and on the website of the Global Education Innovation Initiative, we're also posting it. Um, but we are going to be sharing that certainly with partners like you. The spirit in which we're doing the development of these global common goods is to create um, essentially open education resources, creative commons licenses. We have shared that first report with so many organizations and we basically told them, put it through your networks. And if you want to put on the cover page, your own cover page, if you want to do your own translation, by all means. So I, I, I don't think you're going to have to work very hard to find them. We'll find you and we will ask you to share it. But I'm sure that if you go to the OECD website, it's all there and we will put what we have also on the global initiative. If I could just say one last thing, I, I, I think that one of the lasting contributions that Andreas and the OECD have done over the last 20 years, even though they're best known for PISA, is really deeper than PISA. He's causing people to reflect on what should be the goals of education. PISA was just an instrument to do this, and many of their other projects are that. And I think that is the question of our moment. And in that spirit, I offer this is something for another time, but I have published this open access book uh, titled Education Students, Educating Students to Improve the World, which is all exactly about how do we prepare students to understand the challenges of the present 
and to invent the future. And so I'll send you a link to that, and I hope you can make it available to our viewers. Yeah, I know. I think, you know, again, the OECD website is a good start, but I actually think if you follow the WISE community, you'll always be connected to what's happening and wh where the frontier is in education. Well, I, 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 I appreciate that, that plug, Andreas. And, and uh, well, you know that I'm, uh, uh, I and, and WISE are big, big fans of your work, and in particular, the fact that you brought some, Uh, statistical discipline and, and you created a fact base to, to help guide policymaking and to think about learning outcomes, you know, in, in a systematic and evidence-based way. And I think, again, that that's a, a tremendous contribution, I think, to, to education uh, around the world. Uh, WISE will certainly continue to, to, to follow uh, both of you and, and what you do and to shine a spotlight on uh, Uh, on this critically important uh, work. So I want to thank you uh, both, not just for being on this podcast, but for, uh, uh, for really taking, taking the lead in, uh, in helping to guide global policymaking at, uh, at this critical time for, uh, for education, as well as for uh, many, many other aspects of, uh, of society. And there you have it. Many thanks to Fernando Ramers and Andreas Schleicher for joining us in this discussion. Thank you for tuning in. And once again, if you enjoyed the episode, be sure to let us know your thoughts on our social media channels and check out the links in the description for that too. And be sure to subscribe to Wise Words to join us again next time. All the best. <laughs>